All righty. Today we start the book of Samuel. Yay. Even though your Bibles have it in two parts as 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it was originally written as one book. The only reason it's split in two is because it's too long to fit on a standard size scroll. We're somewhere now, um, if you look at this timeline, in between 1100 and 1050 BCE. And if you look at the brackets there, you'll see the time frames are, are narrowing. We're getting more and more sure of the time frame we're in. We're getting into more uh, better his, actual archaeological and historical records that we can date. So um, uh, we're, we're in a pretty narrow range here. And we're in the town of Ramah, about five miles north of Jerusalem, where we catch up with a young man named Elkanah. He's got two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. And although Elkanah loves Hannah the best, she's not been able to have children. And as a result, the other wife has been making her life miserable. Sounds familiar, right? We've heard this story. Well, this one turns out quite differently. Every year, the family goes to the tabernacle at Shiloh to make their annual sacrifices to the Lord of hosts. This is a brand new name for God. We met the mysterious commander of the Lord's armies back in Joshua 5.14. But in Samuel, we meet God himself as the Lord of hosts, Lord of the armies, for the first time. Every year when they go to Shiloh, Hannah prays for children, but she never conceives. Elkanah tries to comfort her, saying, don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? And of course, that's no comfort at all. If you've ever been in that situation, it probably just makes her feel guilty and makes her try harder to hide her sorrows so she won't distress Elkanah. This year, Hannah kneels in the tabernacle court, weeping and praying. We would say that her spirit is very heavy. Although the word heavy is explicitly used in this story only a couple of times, the idea of heaviness and weight runs like a thread throughout the whole story today. The Hebrew word for heavy is kaved. This thread of kaved is counterbalanced by the word kavod, which also runs through the whole story. Kavod is the Hebrew word for glory. Look how the words are spelled exactly the same except for the vowel points. And both words can mean honor. This whole story is crafted to contrast these two related ideas of heaviness and glory. Hannah prays, O oh Lord, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you for all the days of his life and no razor will ever touch his head. But well, we know from the story of Samson that this means she'll dedicate her son to the Lord as a Nazarite, right? No strong drink, no wine, no touching of anything unclean, and absolutely no cutting of the hair. Now the high priest Eli is sitting there on his throne watching her. Your Bible may say seat in verse 9, but that word is actually the normal word for throne. Another weighty word. Eli himself is described later as heavy, kaved, overweight, and you can picture a permanent frown on his face. As Hannah kneels there murmuring to the Lord, the high priest Eli sees her lips moving, but no sounds coming out. He figures she's drunk and scolds her fiercely, but Hannah replies, 
I am not drunk, my Lord. I have been pouring my heart out to the Lord in anguish and grief. And Eli says, then go in peace and may the God of Israel grant whatever you have requested. Immediately, Hannah's heart is lifted and she leaves the tabernacle feeling more hopeful than she's ever felt. And sure enough, later that year, Hannah conceives and bears a son whom she names Samuel, which means God heard. The next year, when it's time for the family to go back to Shiloh to make sacrifices, Hannah begs Alkanah to let her and the baby stay home. She says, let me keep my son till he's weaned, and then I myself will take him to the tabernacle so he can devote his life in service to the Lord. And so Hannah keeps Samuel at home until he's four or five years old. When he is weaned, the family goes to Shiloh to make sacrifices. And this time, Hannah and Samuel go too. Hannah approaches Eli and asks if he remembers her. She says, I was, the, I was praying for this child and the Lord gave what I asked of him. And so now I'm giving him into your care so he may serve the Lord all the days of his life. How difficult this must be for Hannah. And I imagine Eli is a little taken aback too. I mean, normally a Levite doesn't enter service until the age of 25. What in the world is he going to do with a four-year-old? But a vow to the Lord is a vow to the Lord. And poor little Samuel is left behind in the tabernacle when his mother and father leave for home. Ever after that, he only sees his mother once a year when the family comes to make sacrifices and she brings him a new set of clothes. Chapter two is a long and beautiful prayer of thanksgiving. In the story, the psalm is spoken by Hannah, but the author seems to have lifted it from another later source entirely. In the prayer, she refers to having seven children, when later we see she only ends up having five. And the prayer refers to a king in Israel, but we know Israel had never had a king up to this point. I think this psalm has been chosen by the author specifically to contrast Hannah's former heaviness, Kaved, with her joy now as she gives glory, Kavod, to God. Both words are used in contrast in the psalm. I also find it interesting that this prayer is only the second time in all of scripture that God is referred to as a rock. The first time was in Moses' prayer just before his death. And now we come to the second time. There will be many more times later, but it's interesting that the imagery of a strong, safe rock is another symbol that carries this theme of heaviness and weight forward in the story. We pick the storyline up again in chapter three, but this time it's not about Samuel at all, but about Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They are absolutely horrible men. The word used to describe them is Belial, which is a word that later comes to be synonymous with Satan. Whenever someone comes to offer sacrifices, it's customary to slaughter the animal first and then boil away the fat. The law is very clear that all the fat of a sacrifice belongs to the Lord and is never to be eaten by either the priests or the people. But Hophni and Phinehas despise the Lord. 
Whenever someone comes to boil the fat from their sacrifice, Hophni and Phineas send their servants to stick a prong into the vat and take some of the fatty meat for themselves and their father. And the Lord's anger burns against them. Eli knows his sons are doing this. He's getting some of the meat. He is old and starting to go blind, but even he is aware that Hophni and Phinehas are not only stealing the sacrifices, they're also sleeping with the Levite women who serve at the entrance of the tabernacle. He tries half-heartedly to confront them about their behavior, but they completely ignore him. It says, his sons did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. That word for is another one of those general purpose conjunctions in Hebrew. It it usually does mean for, but it can also mean assuredly, certainly, or doubtless, which I think might be a better fit here. I don't think it's saying they're stiff-necked because the Lord wants, wants them to die. I think it's the other way around. I think it's saying that doubtless the Lord's will is for them to die because of their hardness of heart. But that's my opinion. And there will be scholars who disagree with me. It's entirely possible. I am skewing the author's intent. We have to remember that in these ancient times, everything good or bad that happened to someone was attributed to an intent by the gods. They had sort of a devil made me do it belief. Um, and, and that could be what's going on here in this story. Um, And even back in the work we did on Pharaoh, remember, and in other similar places in scripture, it's entirely possible that this is a cultural overlay. But either way, it's inconceivable that the Lord would intentionally and willfully condemn someone. That goes against everything we've learned about the Lord so far. And the next part of the story supports the point. The Lord sends a man of God, a prophet, to Eli to warn him about his son's behavior. Now, the Lord wouldn't do that unless he wanted Hophni, Phinehas, and Eli to repent, right? The Lord says, why do you honor your sons more than me, Eli, by allowing them to fatten themselves and you on the choicest parts of every offering? I promised long ago that your house would minister before me forever, but I cannot let you despise me. I cannot let this go on. The time is coming when I will cut off your line entirely. Both of your sons will die on a single day, and I will raise up a different line to minister before me and to be my anointed ones forever. So you can see right there, the Lord's heart is not that he wants to kill Hophni and Phinehas. He's being pushed to it. So this is pretty significant also um, that the Lord... This tells us a lot about the promises the Lord makes and has made to Israel. We know the Lord sees his promises very much like the solemn vows of a marriage. There are two parties involved, the Lord and Israel. And if one party insists on despising the other, the marriage becomes untenable. The Israelites can and do push the Lord away to the point that the Lord leaves them promises or no promises. We still have a choice. Now, this is pretty scary. Fortunately, we know that every time Israel does this, they eventually come to their senses and the Lord has pity on them. But Hophni and Phinehas never do return to their senses. 
Now, Samuel has continued to serve and grow through these years. He's probably somewhere around 11 or 12 by now. And one night, just before dawn, when the lamps in the temple are guttering, Samuel is awakened by Eli calling him. He goes to Eli's bed to see what Eli might need. But Eli says, I didn't call you, Samuel. Go back to bed. So Samuel goes back to bed. Again, Samuel hears Eli calling him. But when he goes to see what Eli wants, Eli says, good grief, Samuel, I'm not calling you. Go lie down. And Samuel, perplexed now, goes and lies down again. And it happens a third time. This time, Eli realizes the Lord is calling to Samuel. So he tells Samuel to go lie down. And if he hears the voice again to say, speak, Lord, I am listening. Samuel goes and lies down. This time, the Lord actually comes and stands by his bed. When Samuel responds to his call, the Lord says, I'm about to carry out my judgment on Eli and his family. His sons have scorned me, and Eli has done nothing about it. The ears of whoever hears what, about what I do will ring. The Hebrew here conveys that what the Lord does will be as startling and attention-getting as a cymbal crashing right by your ear. At dawn, Samuel arises and opens the doors of the tabernacle as usual. He tries to avoid Eli because he doesn't want to tell him what the Lord said. But Eli calls him over and says, tell me the truth, Samuel. Tell me all of it. And so Samuel tells him. And Eli says, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. After that, Samuel grows in stature and grace and becomes known throughout Israel as a prophet whose words are trustworthy. The Lord continues to appear to Samuel at Shiloh, and Samuel speaks the words of the Lord to Israel. In chapter 4, the scene changes again. The Israelites decide to go to war against the Philistines. Up to this point, there have just been skirmishes here and there. But beginning in the book of Samuel, the Philistines become Israel's arch enemy and a persistent thorn in their side. The Israelite army sets up camp here at a place called Ebenezer. Eben meaning stone and Ezer meaning help. There's that idea of heaviness and weight again. The Israelites have camped at a place named Rock of Help. Now, in taking the battle to the Philistines, the Israelites have made a grave strategic error. The Philistines deploy their forces at Aphek here on the Sharon Plain. So obviously, this battle is going to take place here where the terrain is flat. Israel has not only given up the high ground here, which is their natural advantage, but the Philistines have chariots and the Israelites don't. And the Philistines can use those chariots if they fight on the plain. Of course, the Philistines route the Israelites. That night, the Israelites regroup to decide what to do. And the elders say, well, it must be because we did not have the Lord with us today. Let's fix that. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh and bring it down here so it can go into battle with us tomorrow. Now, what's wrong with this picture? Lots, right? 
There's no whiff of actually consulting the Lord. This is as bad as divination. In fact, it's exactly the same thing. They're using the ark on their own authority as a sort of magical amulet to feed into the great vending machine in the sky and get a victory in battle. That's not how it's supposed to work. Apparently, Eli goes along with the scheme because he sends his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to accompany the ark. As you know, no one can touch it safely except the priests and the Levites. When the ark enters the Israelite camp at Ebenezer, the soldiers give such a great shout that the ground shakes and the Philistines send spies to see what in the world has happened. When the spies report the ark of the Lord has arrived in the Israelite camp, the Philistines are terrified. Who will deliver us from these mighty gods, they say. These are the very gods who struck the Egyptians with plagues. Be strong, men. Be brave and fight hard. And so the Philistines fight fiercely the next day, and the Israelites are defeated again. Not only does Israel lose 30,000 soldiers, but both Hophni and Phinehas die, and the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. What a catastrophe. A Benjamite runs from the battlefield all the way to Shiloh to bring the terrible news. When he arrives, he finds Eli sitting by the side of the road waiting for word. Eli is now 98 years old and heavy. There's that word kavet again. Throughout the story, he has gone from being able to see to his sight beginning to fail and now being completely blind. An apt metaphor for this leader of Israel. When the man tells him what's happened, Eli startles so badly, his chair falls over backwards and he breaks his neck, dying instantly. And thus, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas all die on the same day. Phinehas' wife is heavy with child, and when she's told the news, she goes into labor. She delivers a baby boy, but at the cost of her own life. As she dies, she names the child Ichabod which in Hebrew is ikavod, meaning no glory. For she says, the ark of God has been captured and the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. What a horrible day. But I want you to notice that even though Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, and his wife all die on that day, the Lord spares the life of the child. Eli's line does not die out. But the Lord decrees that the priesthood will pass back from Eli's line, the line of Ithamar, back to the descendants of Eliezer, the other son of Aaron. The Philistines, meanwhile, carry the ark off to Ashdod, one of their five main city-states, and deposit it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Early the next morning, they find their idol, Dagon, lying face down in front of the ark mystified they set him back up but the very next morning when they go in they find him lying face down again before the ark and his head and hands are broken off in exactly the manner customary for a vanquished enemy king and not only that his head and hands aren't lying beside his torso. They're lying on the threshold of the temple. And to this day, it says, when entering the temple of Dagon at Ashdod, no one steps on the threshold. 
The Lord's hand is heavy, Kabed, on the city of Ashdod. The people are afflicted with tumors. They finally figure out it's because the ark of the God of Israel is in their midst. So being the very nice people they are, they decide to send the ark to the neighboring city-state of Gath. Sheesh, with countrymen like this, who needs enemies, right? Of course, the very same thing happens in Gath. The city is overrun with rats. Everyone gets tumors. People are dying right and left, and there's a great panic. Honestly, with the rats and the tumors, it sounds like it might have been the bubonic plague, you think? So they pass the favor along to their neighbors in the city of Ekron. Well, Ekron isn't having any of it. They call together all the rulers of all five of the Philistine city-states and say, send the God of Israel back to them or it will kill us all. Again, it says God's hand is very heavy, kabed, upon them. And those who do not die are afflicted with tumors and their cries go all the way to heaven. The Philistines have now endured seven months of plague. They are desperate to get that ark back to Israel, but they don't know how to do it. So they call all their priests and diviners together and give them guidance. The priests and diviners say, you must not send it back empty. You must include a gift to appease the God of Israel. Send five golden tumors and five golden rats along with the ark, and maybe Israel's God will relent. Do not harden your heart as the Egyptians and the Pharaoh did. And guess what the word for harden your heart, both here and back in Exodus, is? The word is heavy, kabed. The priests and diviners agree that the thing to do is to load up a brand new cart with the ark and the golden gifts, then hook it up to a couple of cows and send it on its way to Israel. Well, Apparently, a little quarrel breaks out at this point with some of the folks thinking this is awfully extravagant and probably not necessary. They finally hammer out an agreement. They'll use two cows who have just given birth and they'll yoke them to the loaded cart and point them on the road that goes towards Israel and leave them unattended. Then they'll lock their calves in the pen. Now, you know those calves are going to be bleeding, and the mama cows are going to be lowing and trying to get back to their calves. And besides that, the road to Israel is straight uphill. So if the cows pull that cart away from their calves without anyone driving them, and if they take the fork in the road that goes uphill towards Israel, then everyone will know for sure this is the God of Israel's doing. The Philistines hide to watch what happens. Sure enough, those mama cows drag that cart straight uphill to to Israel, lowing all the way as if they're being driven against their will. Well, when the Israelites see the ark, they cannot believe their eyes. The cart comes to a halt in the field of a man named Joshua, literally Yeshua, Jesus, in the village of Beit Shemesh. And there it stops by, you guessed it, a great, big, heavy rock. Some of the men of Beit Shemesh peek inside the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, they had to be curious, right? No one ever gets to see inside that thing. 
Of course, the holiness of God strikes them and 70 men die. It doesn't say what exactly happens, but the words say they are struck with a heavy blow. There's that concept of heavy again. This sort of phrase is often used in scripture to indicate a plague. So it's possible they looked in, picked up the plague from touching the cart and the ark, and they die later. In any case, everyone else is perfectly happy to wait for the Levites to arrive. With thanksgiving, and of course, giving glory, kavod, to God, the the Levites remove the ark and the golden gifts from the cart and lay them on the big rock. Then the people chop up the cart for firewood and offer the cows as burnt offerings to the Lord. The five Philistine rulers, seeing all this, are relieved that their gift has been accepted by the God of Israel, and they turn and go back to their land. The people of Beit Shemesh decide the ark is far too dangerous for them to keep, so they ask the people of Kiriath-Jerim to come get it. The ark is taken there to the house of a man named Abinadab. His son, Eliezer, is consecrated to care for it, and there it stays for 20 years. Samuel calls on all the people of Israel to put away their foreign gods and their Ashtoreths, the female goddesses, and recommit themselves to the Lord. Only by serving the Lord can Israel ever hope to defeat the Philistines and be freed from their violent attacks. I mean, it's not going well so far. Samuel calls the people to assemble at Mizpah near Bethel for prayer and intercession before the Lord. The people assemble and draw water and pour it out to the Lord. Now, this is not a ritual we've run across before, but water is life-giving and precious in this area. So pouring it out is an overt sign of trust and humility and worship. And on that day, the people fast and confess their sins against the Lord. When the Philistines hear that all of Israel has gathered at Mizpah, they form an army to attack. They gather so quickly, there's no time for Israel to respond. Samuel urges the people to stand strong, not by fighting, but by praying to God for rescue. Then Samuel offers a lamb to the Lord as a whole burnt offering, and he cries out to the Lord on Israel's behalf. This reminds me so much of the Exodus when the Israelites were trapped between the the Pharaoh's armies bearing down on them with their back to the Red Sea. And God showed up. When the Philistine army reaches Mizpah, the Lord thunders against them and throws them into a panic. The men of Israel rush out of Mizpah and chase the Philistines, defeating them. Then Samuel takes a stone, there it is again, and sets it up and names it Ebenezer, stone of help, to commemorate the Lord's help. Now, the fact that this name appears here at the end of the story as it did in the beginning, made me go back and look to see if maybe the story is arranged in a chiasm with Ebenezer marking the beginning and the end. When I worked it out, the center turned out to be the passage in chapter five, where the ark is taken from Ebenezer and put in the temple of Dagon and the idol Dagon is destroyed and falls before the God of Israel. 
Now that makes sense as the center, doesn't it? Plus, these are the only three places in the story that the word Ebenezer is mentioned. So that also confirmed that I identified the center of the chiasm correctly. I put the chiasm references in the study guide as bonus material for you if you're interested in checking it out. And so for the rest of Samuel's lifetime, the Philistines did not invade Israel again, or so this story says. We'll see other stories in Samuel from other sources that feature the Philistines as an ongoing threat. But for now, the author says that every year, Samuel travels a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah and back to Ramah, where he lives, judging Israel as he goes. And there in Ramah, he builds an altar to the Lord. This seems like a good place to stop. The threads of heavy, kaved, and glory, kavod, come to an end here. In our breakout sessions, we'll give these threads some thought. We've read the story, of course, but that's only the wrapping paper. What is the gift the author is trying to give us? Why are Kabet and Kavod so important? We need to tease out the message the author is trying to convey to us about God. That felt quick. <laughs> Be sure to turn your mics on so we can so we can chat. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, there's always more depth here than we can cover in the time we've got. Any other? Because I'm going to do that chiasm. <laughs> that chiasm was a little. Um, you know, we're dealing with a different author, so how he does the chiasm is different than what we saw in our previous two chiasms that we looked at. It's a little fuzzier around the edges. Um, it, it reminds me of one of those paint rollers, you know, that's that's got a little oh, yeah. fuzz on it, you know. Um, so it would have it was more difficult to tease out, but the fact that the center came out where it did, and that it was the only other place in the story that the word Ebenezer um, appeared, made me feel, you know, really confident that that it actually was an intentional chiasm. So cool stuff. So talk to me a little bit um, about what sorts of things in the story cause the heaviness, the hardening of the heart, and the departure of the glory of the Lord from his people. This is where we all get quiet. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things our group talked about was disobedience. Yes. Yes. So, you know, when they... Centered, not God-centered. Right. Yeah. Well, and the first place that it was mentioned um, was was Hannah' heart being heavy because she was childless, and that would, in a way, sort of be um, in culturally an absence of blessing and a burden of being mocked by mm -hmm. the other wife. Yeah, and and wanting things that we cannot have, that we can't. Right. Get. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the whole public shame of it, yeah. And that we can't control not having. Yeah. Exactly. And it was kind of um, not so much that she was self-centered, but it sounded like that was kind of a overall theme about the whole first part is like the kids stealing the the sacrifices and and it was you know that it was more of a self-centered type 
of thought through this time. Eli not caring about you know pouring all his his energies into Samuel instead of his own kids. I mean, he kind of let them run amok, and it's like so he missed teaching them what he taught Samuel. Yes. Yeah, oh, that's, that's good. That's good yeah. insight. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. So what I have to I have to disagree because because those sons were a lot older than Samuel, and he had all that time before he had Samuel to uh, teach them. Yeah, that's true. And, they and were a lot older. unless maybe it's just more like a grandson, you know, where he, he puts all, you know, he, he learned from his mistakes and he put all that into Samuel. Anyway. Yeah. It does that's make you wonder what kind of a father he was to his own sons. Yes. Yeah, he couldn't have taught them properly or they wouldn't have been like they were. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I agree with that, Shirley. Because I'm gonna play devil's advocate here, though, isn't that why you know our kids all act the way they are because we didn't teach them properly? Well, yeah, that's no. what you get told. <laughs> no, because they have their own brains and their own minds. Yeah, and you. they, you know, and no matter. Well, how I almost many, made some people mad there, didn't I? <laughs> no matter how many guards you put around them, they, you know, the, oh, yeah. their society and influence. It does seem unusual that both of his sons were that way where, you know, usually, I mean, in most families you have, you might have one child that goes, you know, that that ignores everything, but it's kind of unusual for both. So it depends on how close in age they are that, that, um, Levi just wasn't really great with his first two kids. No, something was, you know, Maybe he didn't care enough, or maybe he or was maybe waiting. It's all the mom's fault. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> of course and it maybe, is. And maybe it's nobody's fault. Um, it, it just—I I minister to so many people whose kids, you know, yeah. run amok, and they just are burned by the guilt of yeah. what in yeah. the world oh, did I do mom wrong? Yeah. And and uh, and it's just not. Yeah, sure. There's there's things that we all do wrong as we parent. Sure. But, but even the very worst parents in the whole world still have great kids. You know, it's That's true. There yeah. is no, there there is there the is there yeah. is a, there are things we do that make it easier for our children or harder for our children. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we all do both of those things. <laughs> We, God we, was us, perfect all one way or the other. Look what his kids did. That's all I'm saying. I I, have, I don't think we have enough information about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I but think can, that they just influenced each other, and they kind of you know were were um, partners in speak. The ones who are, it's my oldest and youngest that are the more conservative. And the ones in the middle all kind of influenced each other. They were very close in age and they kind of, so the ones in the middle are the the three that are the more liberal and they were in middle school at the same time. They were in high school at the same time and they kind of influenced each other. And those kind of family dynamics can absolutely have an impact on kids. Um, You know, God designs us with a purpose 
And there's no telling what purposes God has for us. And he also gave us a promise that he would save our household. He didn't just save us. So mm -hmm. I think in the light of the global thing that, because I have seen people that have gone totally AWOL. I had a girlfriend, that son did everything under the sun and then God hit him. Yes. And now he's, he's, he is a pastor at his church. I mean, don't, don't know our roads. But he allowed him to go that way because now he can, because he's going into right. youth ministry and he can relate and there's nothing anyone can get over on him because he's done everything. You know, <laughs> so he has all these stories and, you know, he can reach what we couldn't reach. That's true. Uh -huh. You know, so I think that's just, and this is, there's a reason and a purpose that he's wanting us to see in this story. Yes. Amen. Thank you for that, Andy. Um, and, and I think that, that Marlene had a um, kind of a good bead on this in, in comparing the, the, the threads of the story together where Hannah was wanting something that she could not have and had no control over. She wanted it desperately. But that's also what was going on with Hophni and Phineas. They wanted the power and the riches and the high on the hog, best of the stuff for them. And you see two different reactions in these two different people to um, that deep-seated need that they each had. Mm -hmm. Hannah, Hannah went to the Lord. Hophni and Phineas did not. Um, Good point. So um, what sort of things in the story ended up lifting the heaviness and causing God's glory to return to his people? Repentance, obedience. Um, we and also turning your eyes back on God. finally realized that the ark shouldn't be where it was, that they needed to send it back if they were going to, you know. And um, we also talked about how, you know, God gave the Philistines two obvious um, signs with the idol when he threw it on the ground and then he broke it and it was separated. If they would have gotten those two, I if they would have listened to those two warnings, the plagues never would have happened. Very interesting. So it's like, you know, he stepped it up because they weren't listening. Yeah, because a lot of this, you know, all of these threads seem to come back to a point of recognizing that God is God. The yeah. power does not belong to us, but but all good gifts can come from God. You know, it's, it's like understanding this natural order of things um, rather than how we want to set it up and make it happen. And yeah, that uh, reminds me of a song from like back in the seventies. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a um, lady named Johnny Erickson. Yeah. Johnny Erickson Tata. Yeah. Um, wait a minute. That's not the, is that the right one? No, not her. Oh shoot. What's the other one's name? Anyway, this, cute little blonde from Sweden or something like that. And she used to sing Christian music and she sang a song called give them all to Jesus. Yeah. Short, short blonde hair. I, yeah. Oh, gosh. I, Evie, Evie, Evie was her name. Evie. Yes. Um, anyway, Evie sang, give them all to Jesus. And I was just thinking, as you were saying that those words were coming into my head. Mm -hmm. um, he will turn your darkness into joy. Oh, I like that. And I don't think I've ever heard that song, but that actually segues beautifully. I will find it and post it for you, Gail. Okay, thanks. All of us, please. Yeah, yeah put, it on the, put it on the Everett's Bible Class Facebook page. 
Okay, I can do that. And then we can all get to it. Um, and and if so, you who are on Facebook, feel free to friend me. Mm-hmm. I'm friendly. Me too. <laughs> Always gathering friends. So are there were there other observations you all had about what what it is that lifts the heaviness? And they con- all all the Israelites got together and prayed. That's true. They got together and humbled themselves, right? And got honest mm-hmm. about what was going on. Yeah, I think that the humility in trusting in something that's out of your control and giving it up is what brings it all in. Um, I shared a, a brief story that I had a, a former student who went through leukemia. And every time things started to look good, it would backslide. And I really struggled with my faith at that point and questioned a lot of stuff and finally had to get back to wait I don't have all the answers and I'm not supposed to that's not my job let's give it up to him and think that that trust and belief in knowing you know like Hannah wanting the answers we all talked about wanting answers to things or it's they're not ours and I think that humility and giving it up and I think that that's very difficult, especially today. Yeah. yeah. And in, in our group, uh, I think it was Renee, you said that, that um, you know, turning back and giving, giving the honor back to God rather than trying to solve things themselves and sort of rush on ahead when they stopped and back and, and sort of. Um, Thank you. Acknowledge that God was, was in control. Um, that that then turned things around again because their focus was once again in the right place. It was on God and not on themselves. Thank you. That's that said it better than I did. Thank you. you guys have no <laughs> idea how weird it is that the things that that I'm working on in the lesson for a week end up being the exact thing, same things that people come for pastoral care about that week. I had wow. like a run on people asking this exact question and being in this exact space where they could see real need in the world and in in either their lives or somebody else's lives that they could not fill and things looked bad and things looked out of whack and like where is God and why doesn't God fix this <laughs> and 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 I could have read the lesson sooner, huh, Gail? <laughs> yeah. And and um and and so I had to sit down and actually apply this lesson this week more than once with more than one um, person. And um and and what I think is that we tend to see a need and to see our ability to respond and to quote fix it in the binary we see that as a closed loop and what we do it instinctively we do this especially in the western world we're binary about this and um what we do is we look at at their need and how desperate it is and we compare that with what we've got that we might be able to bring to bear on that need and we feel a very overwhelming need to bring that into balance, be it giving money or resources or comfort or whatever it is. It involves some sacrifice on our part 
to bring that back into balance. And what ends up happening is the more we see with God's eyes, the more need we see in the world and the greater we perceive that need. We actually see more of the need than we ever were aware of. And we get more and more and more and more out of balance until no matter how much we get, we can't get there, you know? And then we start to feel guilty. Um, if, if we could see, well, if I just gave more and more and more and more, and it would really hurt my family and hurt me, I could get there, you know, and we feel guilt. Or if there's just absolutely no way, we get mad at God for not fixing this, you know. And uh, I think that the problem is in our perspective. God is not binary. Mm-hmm. And God is looking at far more than just this one person's need and just our ability to fill it. And so our portion is to climb up in God's lap. And with God's arm around us, watch what God is doing. We are like a little child sitting in their in their mama's lap with a piece of paper and a pen and mama's hand we are so thrilled because we are writing but it's mama's hand on us you know guiding the letter because we don't have that ability and what is pleasing to our mama is not that we're writing but that we want to write And not the success or beauty of our writing, but that we are sitting on her lap while she does the writing. And that writing, fixing the problem, if you will, in this metaphor, never belongs to us, not in any way, because we are only one letter in this person's story. We are not the story. And our place is to write our letter as best we can Mm -hmm. and sit faithfully in God's lap with our head against God's chest as God manages the resources and the stories and the healing. And our place is to sit on that lap and be refreshed. Feel God's love, see with God's eyes, and allow ourselves to feel God's love coming through us to the person in need, knowing that it is not ours to fix it. There will always be more need than we can possibly fix, but we can sit there And just fill up with the spirit so that we can write one more letter in one more life. Gail, the takeaway that God gave me today, he's the rock. The rock doesn't move. The rock is still where it was. If I can't see the rock, it wasn't him that moved. I got my eyes off the rock Mm -hmm. and 
that's not where they belong. They belong on the rock. And once we get our focus back where it's supposed to be, things can start falling into place. It, it, it absolutely does. And it comes down to being willing to trust that God is good, that God loves us and these other people more than we can ever imagine, and that we can trust the Lord with our heart's desires, like Hannah did. Amen. I, I was, and we talked a little bit about this in our group, my wrestle, and uh, you know, this could come from just kind of historically my lack of clear understanding of God in terms of like law versus gospel, but I really wrestle with the parts of the story that, you know, for example, the gentleman that I know that this was the rule that God set up, but like the gentleman that looked into the ark and then suddenly 70 are dead, you know, or the, the ark went to the Philistines, you know, they, they, in their mind had a victory, but then suddenly all of their cities are essentially having defeat because they're, the plagues are coming and things like that. So I, we talked about the verse of like, you know, for I am gentle and humble in heart that you put. And so I, I at times struggle with the contrast of this God who can just strike 70 dead at any point because of disobedience versus the you know, verse that you, I'm gentle and humble in heart. And God, uh, Ross made a really good point of like, you know, we have to take the whole verse, you know, so the piece of the come to me and the, you know, take your yoke upon me and learn from me. You know, it's, that's kind of the precursor to experiencing Jesus as gentle and humble in heart. Um, but I, I personally often, not often, but at times do struggle with the fear of like, oh, don't strike me dead, God, it, in my ignorance. You know, like, I know there's so much I just don't know yet. And I may be sinning, you know, I can't remember the words we learned in like confirmation, you know, it's like sin that you know about and sin that you know, <laughs> you're doing on purpose and others that you're doing because omission. you're, yeah, omission and commission, you know, it's like, I, I often find myself wrestling with like, I, and this could be a little bit of perfectionism, but it's like, I just want to do it right. So God doesn't help me versus wanting to crawl up in his lap and put my head on his chest and really experience him in that way. Yeah. And, and I, and I think that these um, stories, uh, I'm hoping that what comes across is the utter holiness of God and how that just subsumes us um, when we draw near to it. And in these stories in the Bible, God was physically present in this, you know, with that ark and, and people, you know, were, were coming close when God said, don't ever come that close because it will just, the holiness will absolutely just subsume you. It was not, it should not be perceived as a punishment that God is inflicting on these people. It is the very being of God that is holy. Um, that causes, it's like, like burning, um, refining gold, you know, you burn, burn it all down and, and only the gold is left. And um, so it's, it's just uh, um, getting too close to the flame kind of, kind of scenario. Um, but what, what is hard in these situations when someone is heavy, like we are talking about, and you're trying to, you know, you can't speak to them of theology in those moments when they're suffering. Um, and so it's hard to, uh, to know how, how to speak the glory of God and lift the heaviness 
um, um, when you don't, um, when you can't really talk in those theological terms. And, and so I, I personally find that it is helpful to acknowledge their, their heaviness and the real pain that they are suffering and to then basically stand where you know um, and say, God is good. Know that God is good and that God is walking with you through this valley And one day you're going to come out on the other side. And in the meanwhile, I will walk with you too. It's a position of not fixing it, but of being there while God fixes it. And there is real power in us standing firm in the Lord, in that trust that God is good and that we can trust God with with our needs, there is real power in standing there. Not only like spiritually in the world, there is power in simply standing there, whether you ever say anything or not, but people who are hurting can draw from that strength. Can I ask you a question? While this Bible study is going on, I just got a message from a former student that is, she wanted to talk about heavy. He's, I think in a bad place and it's not the same as the friend I told that I called you about that we felt was suicidal when they don't believe in God, but you want to sit there with them. Yeah. The heaviness. That's the, the difficult part to know. Hmm. You know, if I say to you, to them, to him, God is good. He's going to see you through the other side. He's going to turn me off and not respond. Of course. And so you meet, you do just like God does. You meet them where they are with the language that they have. And so very often you can speak the word love in place of God. Sometimes you cannot even say that in that, in that place. And sometimes it has to be you. Sometimes you have to be the person standing there because that's where God put you. And all you can say is, I can be here in this way. But you can also say to them, you know, I, I cannot be to you what you need me to be and what you want me to be and what I want to be <laughs> for you. But what I can do is this, and then say what you can do. And and you can say, and I believe that you will survive this. You don't have to explain the why or the how. You're simply pointing them in the direction of hope. Hope is another name for God. Yes. Very good. Thank you. Because I, I definitely believe that this reach out happened for that reason. I'm supposed to have received it. Yes. Now I need to handle it carefully. Yes. Yes. Well, I think too, just coming off to what Pastor Gelsa, I think when, when we can't be 
what they need us to be, but communicating, I can't hope for you when you can't hope. Like, yes, I can walk with you and, and try to hope and try to love and try to believe when you can't. Um, yes, and, and you can hold their identity for them, you know, mm-hmm. while they suffer. That is so important, Erica. Yes. That reminds me of of something my daughter told me about the Episcopal Church, where they teach that um, part of the job of the the body of Christ is when someone's faith fails them, that the body of Christ will carry that faith for them until they can pick it up again. Yes. So many people have that connection with each other. Yes. So many people feel great guilt because in their moment of suffering, they're angry with God and far from God and feel like bad people because of how they feel. That's where we can come in and say, feel it, lean into it. It's okay. I've got your good parts sitting right here, (laughs) you know, just Absolutely, Marlene. And I think we're, um, we're clearly to the end of our time, but we've also really answered that last question, which is, what does it mean to refer to God as our rock, our Ebenezer? Um, not just the words, but what it really means, the so what. I think you guys have really answered that beautifully today, what the so what is. I think this is kind of my crisis clinician kicking in a little bit for you, Joe, but just <laughs> yes, even... Thank- Just coming alongside someone who is hurting, obviously in that moment, they might not have the vocabulary or even the thought process to be able to know what to do, but you can offer them, would it be helpful if I look at some resources for you that might help you? Because then that takes the burden off of you of trying to be the person that kind of walks them through that. Because I think you can be that person that journeys with them, also pointing them in a direction of others who may be able to, if it gets to the point where it's acute or severe. And so you can kind of bring, giving them the, the driver, the opportunity to be the, in the driver's seat by saying yes or no, but you are still willing to offer. Like I, I'm noticing you're experiencing so much pain. Would it be helpful if I try to look at some resources for you that might come alongside you, then they're, then they can still own their autonomy and their pain but you are the one that's kind of helping them point them in the right direction. You get to hold their hand for a pass off. Right. And, and I will tell you that in, in a previous scenario, I, I called, I messaged Gail on the day that, cause she asked where I was in Bible study. And I, I told her this is a different person, but it was, and he was sending suicidal texts. Like, you know, this is it. There isn't any more. Um, and when we said that exact question, he said, no, I just have to handle this on my own. This is my problem. So that leaves us nowhere. You know, he didn't, yeah, it, that was a tough one. How this student is going to respond. I mean, he's not a kid anymore. I don't know how he's going to respond to that, but that's a great try. Thank you. But Erica and Ellen, this is what they do for a living. And this insight is really, really important to, oh, sure. to remember. What do I do when they say no? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Well, people I, I, do get to say no. That's yeah. why they phrase it like that. It, the agency needs to be theirs. You know, yeah. they, they need. we need to respect 
who they are and their boundaries. Um, we can offer them help. We cannot and should not force it on them unless, you know, it's like, like we talked about, you know, if it's, if it's, there are, there are warning signs where someone has the will and um, the opportunity and the means and the plan to, you know, kill themselves in this moment, then you can call 911. That's allowed. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, right. but, but in, but go ahead, Julie. They have, they have what's, oh. they have what's called a, a wellness check. Like in our, our state anyway, a police can do a wellness check. So it's, there's sometimes again, back to what doc, you know, Pastor Gail said, it's, you know, there's a, in terms of suicidal thoughts, it's, you have thoughts and we always use it kind of on a teeter totter. So you have thoughts, mm-hmm. you have thoughts with a plan. So that's kind of step two. And you have thoughts with a plan with intent. And so, yeah. And so in, in the con, you know, in the conversation, if it ever becomes appropriate in terms of acute safety concern, as soon as you start to see thoughts with a plan, now we're feeling a little bit more acute, but thoughts with a plan and intent is a 911 right away. And again, it does it then that's off of you. And that's just passing it on for a wellness check. And then the, the, you know, professional at that point can take it from there. Yes. Julie, Julie, you had something to add here. That this is not suicide uh, related. This is um, drug abuse uh, related. I have a close family member who is a drug addict and she has uh, been using probably maybe four years now. Um, she uh, does needles, crystal meth, and uh, she's been homeless for several years and she goes in and out of treatment programs and so I, I cannot provide her any more resources than she already knows. I think everybody in all social workers in the San Francisco Bay Area know who she is. <laughs> She's been through just about everything. The only thing I can do is tell her that I love her and that I respect her as a human being and that I see her as a person who um, is loved. Uh, by God and by me. And that is the only thing I can do. And we have great conversations and we always tell each other that we love each other. And I do always put it back on her. You know, she's, she'll come and say, I don't know if I'm ever going to get out of this. And I'll, I'll say to her, you're going to get out of it when it's right for you to get out of it. And, and that's all I can do is just tell her constantly that she is loved and that she is a human being that deserves respect. And that's as much that, that I, there's nothing else I can do. She's refused absolutely everything else. And, and her recovery is up to her. Um, and all I'm going to do is walk her hand, walk, hold her hand and walk through this journey with her. And if it ends in her dying, it ends in her dying. If it ends in her recovery, then she is recovered. And whatever setback she has, I'll be there for her because I love her. That is so powerful, Julie, and so important to remember. Um, and what you are doing in kind of the metaphors we've been talking about is you're holding her hope for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in when we finally ever get to the New Testament, if anybody's still alive when we get there, um, <laughs> Hebrews that talks about the hope um, and that that hope is like an anchor and that anchor is Jesus. The anchor is, it says, is behind the veil. Um, We are anchored um, in the holy of holies. Um, And uh, and that's what you're doing. 
sometimes all we can be is that anchor. Gail, mm -hmm. I have something to share with you that I think would ever be my situation. It's not related to this, but um, as you know, my cousin came from Alaska during Snowpocalypse 21, and he was stranded here with me, and I learned a lot. And because my cousin could not leave to go back to Alaska on Wednesday, we had a few extra days to enjoy each other's company. And he learned a lot about me and my past. And I learned that he has a trans child. And he has a hard time with his pronouns. He slips up once in a blue moon, but he does a really good job. I was, I was blessed that I had had feelings that it doesn't matter to me already, you know? And so I think his being able to see that there was no comment, no judgment, no shock, no awe, you know, was a blessing. And I was able to clue in my very conservative son ahead of time. And he said, oh, well, I never thought about it. And I guess it can happen in every family. It's just happened in mine. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I hope you treat this with respect. And Graham could care less, you know, he always could. So, yeah. That makes but me Like happy. I said, I would have never known that because it's probably not something he would have shared with me had he not been held hostage here by a snowstorm. <laughs> that makes me happy, Julia. I think that all the things you all are talking about are what it actually really means to, to be in the Lord's presence and see with the Lord's eyes and feel with the Lord's heart. I think that that pain that we feel is part of what Jesus meant when he said, pick up your cross and follow me. I think that's what it is. I think it's actually entering into the presence of God and seeing and feeling the way God does in these situations. And I'm just thrilled to death to, to hear these stories from you guys and to have this discussion. So, I mean, we're like really, really, really way far past our time, but this seems like it was a, a, a theme that we were all living in the past few weeks. So it was a good discussion. I love well, you. One, yeah. one, one quick, quick last just mental health comment back to you. What Julie, Julia just described was because of her new understanding and knowledge, she was able to interact in such a gracious and loving and not feeling like she had to fix it. So it was, she had done kind of her homework to understand the situation, to then be able to be in this unique situation and really love well. So I was thinking back to Joe, I know that we mentioned 911, but in terms of mental health too, almost every city has what's called a mobile crisis team. So like what we are. So that would be another resource where instead of sometimes people feel a little intimidated calling 911 in terms of mental health support. But if you Google in your area who your mobile crisis team is, you can actually call them and tell them about a situation without giving detail to give you more knowledge and understanding and coaching 
and how to take the next steps with whomever it is that you're interacting with. So that may give you the confidence to engage with whomever comes on your radar next, but in a more, uh, more safe manner for you as well as for the other party without necessarily having to involve the police. I think he's feeling without hope right now, but I don't, I don't read from anything in here that I feel like he's suicidal, but I, I need to carefully respond to him to continue engaging with him is what I mean, if that makes sense. I don't. I yeah, don't wanna... and and I do think that that a lot of what you're naming is um, depression, and there's you know low level depression yeah. and middle level depression and acute depression, you know, and there's chronic depression where you can kind of go do this the, your whole life, you know. So um, you can be aware of those, and if he um, allows you to look at some resources, those are the kinds of resources yeah. you might um, want to look at. And I and I feel sure Ellen and Erica would be glad if you wanted to reach out to them as well. Um, they're huge resources. And I am so glad you brought up the mobile crisis teams, Ellen, because um, that is a huge resource um, in, in yeah, many. I'm writing all that down. Many, and I would love to connect with y'all, but I didn't want to put you on the spot. And I don't want to. I'll no, put them on the no, spot. No, no, that's, that's no worries at all. And a mobile crisis team isn't just for suicide. So like we make referrals for substance use support. We make referrals for mental health support. We work with kids, mobile crisis teams. Like we work with four-year-olds all the way to 101 is Erica's oldest client. So, so those are, that's just kind of an overarching where, and you can also just call in without giving your names where you can just case things and have a conversation so that they can help you do a, a, a fair risk assessment, whether suicidal or not. So it can be, you know, can be a kid that got their cell phone taken away and they're just, you know, hopeless, helpless suddenly. I mean, there's really a lot of unique challenges in this pandemic time that haven't been there previously. I want to leave you with that, um, the verse that's there in um, the second verse in question three. I want you personally to remember that verse in you're ministering to people because as you know, as you progress through the Bible, you will, you will see with God's eyes more and more and more deeply, and you'll be drawn into these situations more and more. And it's very easy for you to get sucked into the heaviness. And so I want to leave you with um, a small chorus that is based on that verse from Isaiah 61, three, put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Lift up your voice to God, pray with the spirit and with understanding. Oh, magnify the Lord. That's where glory transforms heaviness. You know, it's really easy to cheerlead people. It's another thing when they're down there to know what to say and the right thing to not lose them. And that's where I, I try to tread carefully. So um, there's a two, like, so not first, my first thought is way to go because you wouldn't be receiving these text messages if you didn't have some historical, uh, for lack of better word, success and loving well. You're trusting. Um, they yeah. Trust you. So that that's awesome. Um, number two is sometimes mental health is viewed very differently than physical health. But if this person was coming to you with a broken leg, you probably wouldn't be texting them about it. 
you know, and so I, I don't mean to be trite with mental health because it's, it's, it's not, not that easy. It's Facebook Messenger. I don't yeah. know that I have his number, but go ahead. Yeah. So even with, with Facebook, you know, continue to, if, if you're able, I know it's not a perfect, a perfect correlation, but if you're able, continue to think of mental health, it, similar to how you would with a physical ailment, you, right. know, you would want to be sending that person to the right person at the right time with the right expertise. You know, you wouldn't, not to be cheesy, but you wouldn't send someone with a broken leg to an ear doctor, right? And right. so, but you, and you probably also wouldn't be Googling, trying to diagnose and help that person. You would go, hey, no. I'm here. I, I can give you a ride. I can hold your hand. I can, you know, send you a few songs to give you some encouragement while you're on your way to the hospital that could maybe bring you joy. But here's the, here's the next stop that would be most helpful for you. I, would, would you agree? Yeah, I think um, something that, I keep hearing you say is you don't, you, you almost don't want to um, do something wrong to cause them to withdraw or to not confide in you. And I think Brene Brown has an excellent, literally like three minute video cartoon of what it means to be with people. It's, um, it's called, I think it's empathy versus sympathy. And it's in her video section on her website. And it's, I love her. Yeah, it's like a deer. I think it's a, a literally a video or it's with a bear. Yeah, I think it's 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 cartoon is yeah. three minutes, but it just gives you a visual of you don't need to know what to say, what to do, um, where to go. Just the fact that they were willing to reach out to you and you were willing to respond and say, I hear that you're in pain and I am so yeah. sorry. I'm here for you. Well, yep. So but I agree with you. The fact that, you know, we've all, he's he's frank with me and I enjoy that and I'm, and I'm okay with that. So now's where this, I find, cause I taught gifted and talented kids and I find that they struggle intellectually with things that can't be, you know, like black and white proven. Yep. And so I find, and it's very funny because I did have a pastor say this about a student that the problem with very gifted students is that they will research and prove themselves out of it, believing a God could exist. I want to lift him up without making him seem like I'm, like I'm doing false teaching, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So I, I know I'm sharing more than you need to know with it, but that's no, kind of just great. where we are that I don't. But I think that er- what Ellen and Erica is saying is, is, is really important that that it's not think of it not in terms of what you can do or say right. but how you can be right just be there's a different present do. yeah, yeah. and you're very different even in our training you know as therapists you know the majority i mean every single class we were just re-reminded and it's humbling when you start to realize this really the you know the therapeutic relationship is like I'm probably botching the statistics, but it's like 90% of the effectiveness of treatment. It's not what you do. It's how you are with them. Right. And so it's, you know, it's, it's easy for me to be like, Oh, well, if I just get this, this, and this technique, and I say this, right. And I do this, right. And even from a spiritual standpoint, you know, as a sister in Christ to some, if I just give them the perfect word, right. No, literally no, just, it's, and I, and I, I completely get that. I, in fact, I now, you know, and I say this to students when I taught them, I say this, I'm a fixer. I want to be able to mm-hmm. fix something for you. And yeah. I've said to him before, you know, that teacher mom in me wants to pull up the perfect little lesson yeah. and have a beautiful heart. But, and I, but I told him, but that's, that's not, 
what we are right here. I can't fix this all, but I, but I can be with you through this. And those are the exact words that I've used. And Mm -hmm. yes, and I do, I do like back to what, and I like what pastor Gail had said earlier, how she had said, I can be with you. And then to really lay out and spell out how, you know, obviously we're jumping the gun. We're saying, you know, we're already assuming that you're going to have multiple conversations. You have, you know, one message thus far. So I don't mean to put the, you know, cart ahead of the horse, but I think that there is too something very um, helpful and, uh, you know, on the receiving end of the person when you can really kind of spell out, like when you say I'm here, that doesn't mean a 3 a.m. phone call, you know, like, and so if it is appropriate and if you feel like that is kind of where the, the direction of increased support needed, really being able to spell out I'm here, you know, kind of like what we just did. Hey, we're available, but on Sunday through Wednesday, we'll be limitedly available. We'll do our best to get with you, but on Wednesday, you know, and so I think even some of that helps people to know, okay, like it's not just this open-ended thing. And then you're able to model for him what it looks like to start to set up some, um, you know, sometimes more as caught than taught, cheesy phrase, but it's true. Well, it all goes back to what uh, Pastor Gill said today, uh, not learning not to view God as binary. I think when it comes to mental health and people really struggling in their heaviness, um, I know I personally have had a challenge of, okay, I'm viewing them as alive and well, and then as, oh, if if we can't help, then they're going to die. And that's a bad thing. And yet there's this God that's in the midst of all of it. When they're in their heaviness, before they're in their heaviness, while they're living, and even during their death, we, we, we have a God that's so infinite and so above anything we can think of and imagine that even if our worst case scenario happens, which would be for us in our mental health, someone taking their own life, I, I have to learn how to trust in the midst that we have a God that was with them, even if they never verbally said they believed in God, even if they never said they wanted a relationship. I got to trust that somehow God was even in their last breath with them. And and that's what has helped me do this job on a daily basis because it's crazy, but of learning how to trust that God, you are, you are with them and I am a speck in their life and continue to use me or not use me. But I want to trust that they are, that you have them in, in the palm of their, your hand. And and that does take the burden off a little bit of like, regardless of what I say or don't say, regardless of whether I did something right or wrong, he has them. And, and that's a a moment where I get to go, okay, I can breathe. And that, that burden is almost lifted because the pressure is not on what I can do or not do. It's on God. I want to continue to learn that you are greater than life and death in my narrow thinking of what's good and what's bad. Yes. Thank you for that. Cause I do feel, I do feel like I, I don't want to call it a burden, but I do feel like I've placed it upon myself to handle this correctly. And I, and I'm not usually so self-doubting. That's not usually my thing, but we both, we both, and this might be a, a read for you guys in the future, but there's a book called Irresistible Evangelism. And again, there might be some theological challenges with the book, but it's been really helpful for both Erica and I in terms of our spirituality, but also in terms of viewing our clients in the mental health world. And so essentially this gentleman, he uses the analogy of a golf course. And so he uses the example of that every single person is like a golf ball in some location on that golf course. 
And so really asking the spirit, the Holy Spirit to tell you where their spiritual address is, because often we're sending mail to the wrong address. So it's not landing right. And so he uses the example of golf clubs and how you would never pull out your putter when you're on the tee because you'd shank them into the woods. But you know, equally, you wouldn't pull out your driver when you're on the when you're on the green because you wouldn't get a good putt. And so the, the challenges for us as people is to really ask the Holy Spirit to let us know where this person's spiritual address is, or, you know, right now we're talking about mental health and then to understand, you know, often we, and it sounds like you're similar to Erica and I, we're fairly, uh, we're high achievers. We're fairly performance oriented. We also have big hearts that really drive us to want to uh, get things cleaned up really quick and move on and move on. And so often we have been presented, especially in our spiritual walk, as we've got to go and make disciples of all nations. Therefore, we need to be the one that gets the hole in one. Yeah. <laughs> and so and we view everything else on that golf course as less than getting them inside the hole. Yeah. And so the, the, so he, the his kind of premise is, yeah, if the person is in the woods, we need to pick, we, we need to get our chipping wedge. And we might be our role in that person's life may only to be to get them six feet out of the woods. And then somebody else is going to come in with a new golf club with a new, you know, and so it may not be me that gets them from the tee to the hole. That's the book. Okay. And who's, what's the name of the author? Uh, There's three, Steve. And I don't know how to say that last name. It looks like it's maybe Swedish S J O G R E N. The next author what? is... Wait, that's Sjogren's. Okay. I don't know I, what... Next. Well, no, I Maybe have I... Sjogren's. I'm like, what? Okay, but I got it. That's enough. Next, I next got one it. is, next one is Dave... Okay, Dave Ping and Dave Pollock. Yeah, Doug Pollock. Right. So yeah. that was helpful for us to be... To, first of all, take the pressure off. We're not the hole-in-one. You know, occasionally. <laughs> no. Occasionally, we do get a hole-in-one. So we might just be the yeah. person that puts the golf ball on the tee. And that's, that's it. We don't even, we don't yeah. even get to take a swing. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm a cog in the wheel that helps the wheel keep moving, I'm glad to be that. I don't have to be the wheel. I'm glad to, I'm glad to do that. I, Though yeah. I really like I the speak in analogy and, and metaphor too. So, and I used to be a person of achievement. I used to be a teacher and now I'm medically retired and I'm just floundering, like trying to find the next purpose. The problem is there's so many out there. How do I choose one? So Hmm. You know, I'm sitting here listening to you going, I need to volunteer with something like that in my city. Well, I also want to rock NICU babies. I want to, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm not like Gail who's got, okay, yes, I have 10 gifts and I'm going to focus on this one. And I, yeah, she's so accomplished, but no, I love speaking <laughs> with you guys and I love the book and I'm going to grab it and read it and I'll let you know. And when I throw out anything that doesn't apply, because obviously we're, no, we're, on, we're on a new, we're on a new spiritual journey too. And some of that we're like, eh. so Joe, no, before I- we sign off, um, I do want to circle back to one of the things you said here at the end. And that was that you said something along the lines of you're not usually in this space of being unsure um, and of, of not knowing how to respond and um and I want to say to you that I see that as major growth in you, mm-hmm. that it is a very good thing and actually a much improved thing that you have been able to get to that spot, that uncomfortable spot of being unsure. Mm-hmm. 
It is out of that spot that you will minister most effectively. Really? Because I think that that out of the spot or out of that comfort zone has come from the demise and crash of my career and then the marital stuff I went through with my kids that now I just doubt everything about myself. There's like, and that's this good. And I'm saying that the Lord is taking all of those experiences and, and crafting a great big empty space where once you had surety and That Thank is you. where ministry and growth happens. <laughs> I've clearly not looked at it that way. I've looked at it as a void. So I think I'm talking about I'm a great big empty space where Joe isn't the one ministering. Mm. Yeah. Where there's space for God. And you're simply holding that space for God to minister to that person. That's a very good place to be, my Joe. <laughs> I love you guys. Talk to you next week. Thank you. Bye. Erica, thank you for staying and talking. No with me. problem. Thank you for facilitating it. Thank you all so much. Hey, we're with you in it. Bye. Bye. Bye.